Today, we are in Mark chapter 14. For those who've been with us, we've been going through the book of Mark, passage by passage, verse by verse, just trying to see what it is that God says in his word, and then to orient our lives around that, orient our understanding of him and ourselves around that. And so let's look at Mark chapter 14. We're in verses 66 through 72. If you're using one of the provided Bibles under your chairs, um, that's going to be on page 852, 852. But we're in Mark chapter 14, verses 66 through 72. And as Peter was below in the courtyard, one of the servant girls of the high priest came, and seeing Peter warming himself, she looked at him and said, You also were with the Nazarene Jesus. But he denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. And the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, This man is one of them. But again he denied it. And after a little while, the bystanders again said to Peter, Certainly you are one of them, for you are a Galilean. But he began to invoke a curse on himself and to swear, I do not know this man of whom you speak. And immediately the rooster crowed a second time. And Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, Before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, as it's already been said, we are grateful to come before you and worship you. Lord, you call us to worship you. We saw that in Psalm 118. But Lord, we are also aware of the ways that we've fallen. and We're grateful for your grace. We ask that as we look at this passage, that we be reminded of our call to worship you and the grace that you have provided in Christ. We pray that you would help us to see clearly who we are. We thank you for making us aware of our sin, where we do believe that we are a fallen people, as we just read. But we often forget that. Forgive us for our own self-confidence at times. We pray that by your word, you would reorient our hearts. God, we pray that the gospel be proclaimed here, that I would speak clearly, Pray that the gospel be proclaimed at other churches around Columbus as well. I think particularly of Maranatha Community Church in Pickerington. Thank you for their faithfulness to proclaim your word. Lord, also Gethsemane Baptist Church in Marengo. Thank you for these fellow churches who orient themselves not around pragmatism or what is convenient with culture, but orient themselves around your word, around the person of Jesus Christ and what you have said as revealed in your scriptures. We pray that that would continue here and that she would be magnified. We ask this in Christ's name. Amen. Amen. So in the 13th century, we have what historians believe to be the first glasses known to history. And they were spread about by scholarly monks. And then by the 18th century, temples were added to the glasses for hands-free use. Couldn't imagine for nearly 500 years holding them the whole time. By the 18th century, temples are added, allowing hands for use. And then by the 19th century, mass-produced frames and lenses made glasses accessible to all. 
Many of us in here wearing glasses. Thank you for mass-produced frames and lenses so that we can see clearly. By the 20th century, lenses became lighter, they became less breakable, and they were coated to reduce harmful light. And then over time, new materials advanced style and utility. 20th century, we also saw sunglasses come about. So not only style, but also utility. And then today, over 184 million Americans wear glasses, which is roughly 64% of the population. So nearly two-thirds of Americans have impaired vision and need help seeing clearly. It's an unfortunate effect of the fall, is that our vision is impaired, not only physically, but also spiritually. We, spiritually speaking, oftentimes don't see ourselves clearly. And by not seeing ourselves clearly, there are eternal consequences. And what we see in today's passage is that Peter's impaired vision of himself, his self-confidence, led to his fall. However, his response led to his restoration. Peter's self-confidence led to his fall, but his response led to his restoration. We need to see both of those things today. And so as we look at the passage, before we jump headfirst into it, just some background. So if you've been with us in recent weeks, you've recognized that Jesus and the disciples were just at the Garden of Gethsemane, and Judas betrayed Jesus. Jesus is arrested, and now he's on, or he was just on trial. We talked about that last week. We talked about how that was essentially a kangaroo court, not a court for kangaroos, but a corrupt court. They had already decided the verdict prior to ever starting the trial. And they end up in that corrupt trial, condemning Jesus as deserving death. This was a Jewish court in front of the Sanhedrin, but they were under Roman rule. And so in most cases, they can't carry out a death sentence. And so they can condemn him as deserving death, but they need to send him to the Roman leaders, Pontius Pilate, to actually carry out the death sentence. And then while he's being prepared to go over to Pontius Pilate, they cover his face, and then they start to strike him. And they're striking him, telling him, prophesy. Tell us who it was that struck you. Because Old Testament passages said that the coming Messiah would judge not by sight, but by righteousness. And so they said, if you're the Messiah that covers sight, and they strike him and say, tell us, who is it that's striking you? Prophesy. The irony in all that is that while they're telling him to prophesy, One of his earlier prophecies that Peter would deny him three times is taking place right at that moment in the courtyard below. And that's what we're reading about tonight, or this morning, I should say. And so today, if you look in your bulletin, you will see there are two things that I want us to pay attention to. There's Peter's distance and Peter's response. Peter's distance and Peter's response. And so looking at that first one, Peter's distance, when I say Peter's distance, you can also just put in parentheses next to distance, self-confidence. So when you see distance, when you hear me talk about distance, it's almost synonymous with Peter's self-confidence. And so Peter, for the last three years, has been following Jesus closely. He's been following him closely, and then we get right up to the garden And Jesus is arrested, and now Peter is following Jesus from a distance. Now, let's let's give Peter credit. We just read about 
this threefold denial. It's a big deal. It's a massive failure by Peter. However, let's give him some credit because even following Jesus from a distance is more than the other 10 disciples did. So Peter, following Jesus from a distance, he loves Jesus enough not to totally forsake him. But it's also important to notice that Peter loves himself enough to prioritize his own well-being over Christ. He loves Jesus enough not to totally forsake him, but he still loves himself more than Christ. So if you look at verse 66, as Peter was below in the courtyard. So previously, Peter was on the same plane. He was following Jesus closely. Then he was following Jesus from a distance. And now he's below. So the degree of separation has increased. Jesus, it's implied, is, is above. He's at this corrupt trial. And Peter is now below. Peter didn't follow him up into the trial. He stayed below in the courtyard and he warmed himself with the others that were there. And as this degree of separation increases between Peter and Christ, Peter is becoming weaker. He's becoming more and more susceptible. And so we see right there in the garden, just a few passages ago, Peter in front of a mob is ready to go to battle for Christ. He pulls out a sword. He lops off Malchus's ear. Jesus says, hey, put the sword away, calm down. And now he's falling from a distance. And Peter, who just stood up in front of the elites of society, is now separated from the disciples. He's separated from Christ. And he's now weaker. He's more susceptible. And so we see a servant girl approach him. Now, this servant girl should not have been intimidating to Peter for a couple of reasons. One, she's a servant. She's already one of the lower parts of society. Then she's also a girl. She's a woman, which in ancient Jewish society meant next to no threat to a man. But she recognizes Peter. And in verse 67, she sees him warming himself. She says, you also were the Nazarene Jesus. And Peter immediately enters into self-preservation mode. He was just willing to stand up for Jesus. He was just willing to go to battle for Jesus. And now he's in self-preservation mode. And he denies Christ. He denied it, saying, I neither know nor understand what you mean. So in this moment, just a little bit earlier, Peter was ready to go to battle against the elites of their society. He now is overtaken by one of the lowest members of the society. His distance from Christ, his self-confidence in himself to be able to follow Christ from a distance, has led to him being overtaken by one of the lowest members of their society. And then, as soon as that happens, Peter goes further away. He goes further away from Christ. Look with me in verse 68. So after he denies it, we read, And he went out into the gateway, and the rooster crowed. So Peter, who was in the courtyard, he's overtaken, and he denies Christ. And rather than trying to go closer to Christ, he goes further away. He's in the heart of the courtyard. He now goes towards the entrance, the gateway of the courtyard. And in so doing, while he's doing that, the rooster crows. And this first crow serves, Peter as, serves for Peter as a warning. That, hey, Jesus said that, he was going to, that Peter was going to deny Christ three times before the rooster crowed twice. The first crow should be a warning for Peter. 
hey, there, there's, there's the rooster crow. How often do we not recognize God's warnings? May God help us to recognize the warnings that he has graciously put into our lives. And so what, what are those warnings? Well, you can package them in all kinds of small ways, but broadly speaking, God has provided us with two warnings, two ways of warning his people when they start to head down a destructive path. The first is his word. So when we see 2 Timothy 3.16, say all scriptures breathed out by God and profitable for teaching, for reproof, for correction, and for training in righteousness. We see two proactive, so we see for teaching and for training. Then we see two corrective measures for reproof and for correction. God has given us his word so that as we read it, it's like us looking into a mirror to see who we are. And then we recognize, oh, I am falling short in this area. I should confess that to God. I should confess that and repent and turn away from it. And he will help continue to shape me and form me into the image of Christ and walk in paths of righteousness. So when the word shows us that we are not living faithfully, that's meant to be our response. But when that isn't our response, then God has given us another method for a warning. He's given us the body, one another, his local church, as we see in Matthew 18. Any parent here who has taken their child for a walk knows the consistent correction as they're walking to say, hey, don't go towards the road. Don't run in the street. You don't get it right now, but if you run that direction, it could lead to your utter destruction. We were on a walk just a few weeks ago, and Finley saw something that she was excited about by the road. It wasn't in the road, but it was by it. And she went, started to run towards the road. It was a busy road, and she wanted to pick this thing up. And I recognized that had she just even tripped a little bit, she would have fallen right into the road as cars are passing by. And so as she's going, I, I used my words. I said, Finley. And I didn't stop there, but I used my words, and then I scooped her up. It wasn't enough. My love for her isn't enough just for me to say, Finley, don't go into the road. I love her enough to use my body as well to prevent her from falling into that destruction. Now, when that happened, she was broken. She was scared. She thought she was in big trouble. And she started crying. And like us, reproof, correction from the body can be painful. But if we truly love one another, we will watch out for one another. We will care for one another. When one of us begins to go down a path of destruction, we will love that person enough not to leave them in their comfortable destruction, but to go and have a conversation. And we point those individuals back to what God's word has said. God, in his kindness, has not only given us his word, to protect us, but he's also given us his body, the body of Christ, the local church. So that first warning where the rooster crows has no effect on Peter, unfortunately. And so the story continues. We see in verse 69 that Peter is again identified as being one of them, and Peter denies it. So the servant girl saw him and began again to say to the bystanders, this man is one of them verse 70, but again he denied it. Then the bystanders 
eventually agree, yeah, that you are one of them. You're Galilean. Matthew tells us that it was his accent that gave him away. It'd be like Americans going over to England. As soon as we open our mouths, those elongated vowels are noticeable, and they recognize that we are not English. We are American. And so Peter, as soon as he opens his mouth to say that he's not one of them, they recognize his accent. They say, no, 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 surely you are. You're, you're Galilean. And then Peter denies him for a third time. And this time he invokes a curse on himself and he swears that he doesn't know Jesus. Now, in, in this moment, he's not, it's not swearing like cussing. Peter is invoking a curse and, and swearing, I do not know this man. And he's invoking a curse on himself saying, if I am lying, may God's curse rest upon me. And by God's grace, as we'll continue to see, even though he was lying, even though he was denying Christ, the curse of God was not placed on Peter, but it was placed on someone else. And so then we see the rooster crow for a second time. And Luke tells us that at this moment, when the rooster crowed a second time, Peter made eye contact with Christ. And it was that moment, for the first time, Peter realized who he was. For the first time, Peter is seeing clearly. He recognizes how fallen he is and how broken he is. To date, up up until this point, Peter has shown lots of self-confidence. He was the one who walked on water with Jesus. He saw Jesus' transfiguration. He rightly proclaimed that Jesus is the Christ, that he is the Messiah. He swore that he would never leave Jesus, even if the others did. He said, even if I have to die with you, I will never forsake you. And then when the opportunity came to defend Jesus, while all the disciples were scattering, Peter pulls out his sword, and chops off Malchus's ear. So Peter has had a lot of self-confidence, and we've seen this throughout the gospel. But his self-confidence is misplaced confidence. It's confidence in him rather than confidence in the person of Jesus. And God graciously, so kindly, allows Peter to see this. He sees it for the first time. There might be something in your life where God has allowed you, perhaps for the first time, to, be, to have a sin of yours exposed. And that's painful. That hurts. But consider that God's kindness. The Lord disciplines the ones that he loves. He will show you your sin for your good. And Peter now, for the first time, sees clearly who he is. His self-confidence prior to this led to his hesitancy to walk closely with Jesus, even when it was difficult. His self-confidence led to his hesitancy to walk closely with his master, which eventually led to his fall led to his denial, his outright denial of Christ. His hesitancy to walk closely with Jesus led to his outright denial of Jesus. And that hesitancy was rooted in his own self-confidence. I can, I can walk from a distance. I can follow Jesus. I don't have to be up there. I don't have to be in the difficult throes of following him. I can follow him from a distance. So Christian, we need to ask ourselves, are we trying to follow Jesus from a distance? We asked this question last week, but it's worth bringing up again. We're trying to follow him from a safe distance. Are you distancing yourself from Jesus, perhaps in the ways that you answer questions when a coworker asks about your personal life, what you did on the weekend? 
or what you think about certain political issues? Are you trying to distance yourself from Christ? Perhaps it's at the jokes that you laugh at or the activities that you habitually partake in. Are you trying to distance yourself safely from Christ? And if you're in the room and you are not a Christian, I just want to apologize for how confusing Christians can be. We can be a confusing bunch. Part of that is because over the last 70 years, there's been a push for easy believism. Just to say the prayer. If you've said this prayer, then you're good. Done. Don't worry about how your life is afterward. If you've said the prayer, you're good. And that has led to so many people having false assurance that they are faithfully walking with Christ because they said a prayer one time rather than what their life looks like today. If you are a follower of Christ, then you will repent of your sin. If you're not a believer today, if you're, not, if you're in the room and you're not a Christian, that's a good rule of thumb. If you want to know who a Christian is, whether they say they are or not, if they say they're a Christian, and a good rule of thumb is that Christians fight against their sin rather than cozy up next to it. Christians fight against their sin rather than cozy up next to it. This is what the Bible calls repentance, where we confess the ways that we've fallen short and we attempt to turn from it. We ask for God's help in turning away from those sins. And what we see in this passage and in some of the parallel passages and connecting passages, that Peter himself was self-confident and it led to his outright denial of Christ. However, that's not where the story ends. Praise God. Because now we get to see Peter's response. So Peter, if you look at the end of verse 72, we read that he remembered Jesus' words. Peter remembered how Jesus had said to him, before the rooster crows twice, you will deny me three times. And he broke down and wept. Peter was broken over his sin. He was broken over it. And what, did he, what he did was perhaps even before he went to Christ, perhaps he remembered what Jesus had said in Luke 22, where Jesus, right before he predicts Peter's three denials, Jesus says this. This is interesting. He tells Peter, Satan demanded to have you, that he might sift you like wheat, but I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And when you have turned again, he's telling Peter, he knows that he's going to turn away from him. But he says, and when you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Jesus knew Peter would turn from him. But he also knew that Peter would repent. That he would turn again back to Christ. And so what we see in these passages, we just earlier read about Judas who denied Christ by betraying him. And now we read about Peter who denies Christ. And there's a tension here of what's the difference between Judas, who we don't think favorably of, and Peter, who is called the chief apostle. So what, what, what's the difference here? Because both denied Christ. Both chose themselves over Christ. Both were unfaithful to Christ. And so what is the difference between these two disciples who denied their master? Well, the difference is their response to sin, which has always been the difference between a Christian and a non-Christian, is how 
that individual responds to sin. 2 Corinthians 7.10 talks about this worldly grief versus godly grief. We read in 2 Corinthians 7.10, For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. Judas, who is an example for us for worldly grief, it eventually led to his death. I remember being in chapel at seminary back in March of 2016, and the chapel speaker was talking about this, this very passage, worldly grief versus godly grief. And he gave some helpful points. He said, worldly grief runs a risk-reward analysis. Ask the question, how much should I confess and repent of? Runs a risk-reward analysis. Whereas godly grief asks, what will this do to the name of Christ if I don't confess and repent? He says, worldly grief deals with sin afterwards. Whereas godly grief proactively deals with sin. He says, worldly grief is about self-preservation, whereas godly grief does not withhold anything for self-preservation, but does everything possible to make things right, even if that ruins the reputation of the individual. It's everything possible to be right with God, even if that ruins my reputation. One commentator said that regret is about us, whereas repentance is about God. And there are two signs of real repentance. One, the commentator says, a sorrow for sin rather than just for its consequences. True repentance is a sorrow for sin rather than just its consequences. And two, a sorrow over idolatrous motives, not just behavioral change. So what are the motives that are leading me to act out in this way, to go against my Savior? Sorrow for those, those motives. And so Mark is known, the author here, John Mark, he's known for abrupt starts and ends, like a new driver with a, with a heavy foot. Quick starts, quick stops. This is Mark's writing style. And so we need to look to John, because Mark mentions Peter at the end. He gives indications that Peter's been restored in Mark 16. We see that in verse 7. But we need to look at John for more detail around what actually took place with Peter. So look with me in John 21, if you have your Bibles. John 21. In verse 7, we see after Jesus' resurrection, he's calling out to some of the disciples while they are fishing. And John, recognizing that it was Jesus calling to them, he said to Peter, It is the Lord! When Simon Peter heard that it was the Lord, he threw himself into the sea. Previously, Peter was gradually moving further and further from Jesus for self-preservation. Whereas now, he throws himself overboard just to be closer to Christ. Previously, in the garden, Peter fell asleep three times. And then in the courtyard, Peter denied Jesus three times. And now, on the beach, Peter is restored three times. Look in verse 15 of John 21. 
When they had finished breakfast, Jesus said to Simon Peter, Simon, son of John, do you love me more than these? He said to him, yes, Lord, you you know that I love you. He said to him, feed my lambs. He said to him a second time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? He said to him, yes, Lord, you know that I love you. He said to him, tend my sheep. He said to him the third time, Simon, son of John, do you love me? Peter was grieved because he said to him the third time, do you love me? And he said to him, Lord, you know everything. You know that I love you. Jesus said to him, feed my sheep. And if you look in verse 18 and 19, we don't need to read those, but Peter is told that he'll glorify God even in his death. And in 19, he's invited to follow Jesus again. Why? Why is Peter invited to follow Jesus again? Because Peter clearly saw his broken state. And he went to the only one who could restore him. When Judas was upset over the sin that he had committed against Jesus, he tried to rectify it himself. And when that didn't work, he gave up hope. Peter, overwhelmed by his sin, as soon as he sees Jesus on the shore, he jumps out of the boat. He doesn't even wait for the boat. He jumps out and tries to get to Jesus as quickly as possible. And then he listens to Jesus' words. And Jesus affirms him. Jesus restores him three times. If we are to be restored to God, our response to our sin must be going to Jesus and following him. This is what Christians have called repentance. This is what the scriptures call repentance. We go to him, we confess, and we strive to follow him faithfully. Followers of Jesus repeatedly take their sin to Jesus. They still sin because they're still in the flesh but they fight against it by confessing it to him and asking for his help to walk faithfully. Maybe you're in the room and you are overwhelmed with sin, like Peter, like Judas. Not sure what maybe what kind of season of life you may be in, but maybe you're feeling overwhelmed by your faithlessness toward Christ. Let the story of Peter, the chief apostle, let his story be an encouragement to you. Well, what what about 2 Timothy 2.12, where if we deny him, he will also deny us. What about about that, Rob? That passage is true. If we deny him, he will deny us. However, John 6.37 is also true, where Jesus says, whoever comes to me, I will never cast him out. Peter denied Christ, but he didn't stay there. He went to Jesus, and Jesus did not cast him out. He forgave him and he restored him. Peter and Judas both were overwhelmed. Judas tried to fix it on his own. Peter went to the only one who can. Peter was restored. Judas was not. And if you're a non-Christian friend, again, thank you for being here. Hope you continue to come back. But if you are not a follower of Jesus, no matter what you have done, know that the invitation to be restored to God is on the table. Peter was a follower of Jesus. He was in his inner circle. He was the leader of the disciples. He had a massive failure. But he was restored. No matter what you have done this morning, 
The offer is on the table for you to be restored to God. In the Gospel of Mark, we've consistently said that the theme is God restoring his wayward people. Now here, in the person of Peter, we see the process by which that restoration takes place. Sinclair Ferguson put it this way. He said, Peter needed to be emptied to be filled. He needed to be broken to be made strong. He needed to be sorrowful to know the joy of true forgiveness. Brothers and sisters, we needed to be far off in order to be brought near. But we have been brought near if you are in Christ. And Peter, who Jesus says, feed my sheep, feed my sheep, tend to my sheep. In 1 Peter 5.10, is writing to Christians who are suffering for their faithfulness. So Peter was faithless and restored. Now these Christians in the book of 1 Peter, in his first epistle, they are being faithful and they're suffering for their faithfulness. And here's what Peter says to them. In light of what Jesus just said to strengthen his sheep, Peter is writing to them, attempting to strengthen them with these words. He says in verse 10 of chapter 5, And after you have suffered a little while, the God of all grace, if anyone can say the God of all grace, it's Peter. The God of all grace, who has called you to his eternal glory in Christ, will himself restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. If we take our sin to Christ, he is faithful to forgive us. He will restore, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. Peter's distance, his self-confidence, led to his fall. But his response led to his restoration. His self-confidence kept him from seeing himself clearly. But once God allowed him to see his weakness, he was restored. But he wasn't just restored. He was restored and used greatly. So there are two dangers that we need to be aware of. The first is the danger of self-confidence. That we can follow Jesus from a distance and still be faithful. 1 Corinthians 10, 12 says, Therefore let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. Peter's self-confidence led to his fall. Let us not be deceived by thinking that we can stand from a distance from Jesus. So the danger of self-confidence. And then the second thing is the danger of not sprinting to Jesus when we do sin. Brothers and sisters, whether you're a Christian or not, you will continue to sin. The difference between a Christian and a non-Christian is the response. Peter went to Christ. If you are a Christian, then your response is to go to Jesus and to confess your sin. 1 John 1, 8-9 says, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves. And the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Martin Luther said that either sin is lying on your shoulders or it is lying on Christ, the Lamb of God. And if it is resting on Christ, if you have taken your sin to Him, and if your sin is resting on Christ, then you are free. Let's pray. Father, 
Thank you for the story of Peter. Thank you even for his failures. So we can see the process of restoration. Thank you for restoring your servant. God, for those who are in this room who are Christians, have them be encouraged by Peter's story. Have them be encouraged to continually take their sin to you. Have them not be deceived, thinking that there's no sin in them. God, we pray that we'd be a people who confess our sin continually to you and fight against it. We pray for anyone in here who does not know Jesus, they would be perhaps see themselves clearly for the first time. They would see that they are fallen, that they have gone against God. However, you, you offer forgiveness. You offer restoration. We pray that they would see that and that they would embrace this good news. We thank you, Jesus, for taking our sin, for allowing us to lay that on you. Thank you for the freedom that we have in you. It's in your name we pray. Amen.